0: You're listening to the Sermon Audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. Genesis 30, 25 through 43. Uh, If you're using the Chairback Bibles, that's page 17. I'm going to be reading the first portion of that, which is uh, verses 25 through 36. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph... "'Jacob said to Laban, "'Send me away, that I may go to my own home and country. "'Give me my wives and my children, "'for whom I have served you, that I may go, "'for you know the service that I have given you.' "'But Laban said to him, "'If I have found favor in your sight, "'I have learned by divination "'that the Lord has blessed me because of you. "'Name your wages, and I will give it.' "'Jacob said to him, "'You yourself know how I have served you "'and how your livestock has fared with me, "'for you had little before I came, "'and it has increased abundantly.' And the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now what shall I provide for my own household also? He said, what shall I give you? And Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Every one that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. And Laban said, Good, let it be as you have said. But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted, and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it, and every lamb that was black, and put them in the charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob pastored the rest of Laban's flock. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for bringing us together today in fellowship. I pray that you'd open our hearts to uh, hear the message and you'd be with Marty as he brings it to us. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. amen.
1: Thank you, Justin. Have you ever made a really bad deal? Have you ever been disappointed with a purchase, experienced buyer's remorse? Have you ever had a really great deal just evaporate right in front of you? I learned about bad deals in my third grade Christmas gift exchange. In elementary school, we drew names for gifts and my friend Dennis got my name and I also drew his name and I bought Dennis a gift that I would like. I spent the maximum amount allowed, which as I remember was something like five bucks. Yes, it was selfish thinking, but I sort of thought maybe the golden rule was my motive and I was doing unto Dennis what I wanted Dennis to do unto me and the unto me thing I wanted Dennis to do was to get me the truck camper boat combo that I spent five bucks on. Even in third grade, I had nice unique redneck taste. I hinted to Dennis several times what a great gift I had for him without completely telling him all about it, and secretly I hoped to get equal awesomeness in return. I even name-dropped the toy store where I got the gift in casual conversation, hoping he'd get the hint. Well, the day of the exchange, I gave Dennis the best truck camper boat gift ever. And he gave me, wait for it, because it's really good, Dennis gave me a Bullwinkle the Moose stamp set. A few days later, I saw this stamp set at the dime store for 50 cents. I gave him the five-buck dream toy, and he gave me the gift that was on the rack right by the checkout to keep your kids quiet. My deal went horribly bad, and then it went worse. We could trade gifts, and little boys love to trade. I don't think I ever ate the lunch my mom sent me in school ever. There was always trading going on. Dennis traded what I valued most to Murphy, who was the class bully, for a half-eaten bag of candy. So to add insult to injury, I stood in this trading frenzy that looked like the New York Stock Exchange as everybody's trying to make a better deal, standing there with my Bullwinkle stamp set, which literally had zero trade-in interest, watching the class bully Murphy play with the toy that I gave to Dennis while Dennis is eating his candy. It was classic bad deal-making disappointment. In our text this morning, I kind of think Jacob had a similar experience. makes me wonder how well we Christians can handle disappointment, even disappointment that's a result of our own failures, our own expectations at deal-making, which, if we will be honest, let's face it, many of the deals we make have a spiritual component to them that we put there. As we look at the text, you might notice that our sermon outline on on the sheets is just showing us how the story unfolds. I felt like it was the simplest way to deal with what can be a little bit of a convoluted story. So we're just going to tell the story, look at the pieces of it, and along the way point out how it might fit into our perspective as we handle the text this morning. Let's begin looking at Jacob's deal with Laban in verses 25. 43 and there we're going to notice that there's this negotiation that takes place in three parts the first part is jacob expressing a desire to depart a desire to depart in verses 25 through 26 look what the text says as soon as rachel had born joseph jacob said to laban send me away that i may go to my own home and country and give me my wives and my children for whom i have served you that I may go, for you know the service that I have given you. Now, right at the very start today, I think we should probably get clarity on a very unusual relationship that Jacob has with Laban. You see, if you remember from previous sermons, Jacob has a series of broken relationships with his own brother, with his own father, uh, and he is forced to flee to his mother's family. In the country of Aramea literally running for his life because his brother Esau wants to kill him he went there also to find a wife and he wound up in the household of his uncle Laban who took him in there Jacob fell in love with Laban's youngest daughter Rachel yeah this is his cousin yeah that's weird but this is how God provided for Jacob in the text and What happened is there was a very messy, problematic bargain that his uncle made with him then, which wound up with Jacob marrying both Laban's daughters, Leah and Rachel. And so, Uncle Laban is not only Jacob's father in law, he's also an uncle, and to make it even more complex, he's also his employer. So, he's a respected uncle, he's a respected father in law, and he's the boss. Jacob is kind of in one of those I am my own grandpa kind of scenarios. Maybe this is southern Aramea, I don't know, but it's convoluted. Jacob is ready, though, to move on from Uncle Laban at the beginning. At this point, most of his family, which is quite large, 11 sons, have been born to him. He wants the official release to return home to Canaan, having finished his initial deal with Laban for his wives second part of this negotiation begins in verse 27, where we see dangerous divination happening. Look what Laban says. Laban says to him, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages, and I will give it. Now what's going on here is that Laban is buttering Jacob up with his offer. In fact, he, he's going to offer some bait in his deal-making or to his deal-making son-in-law that has two very dangerous hooks. First hook, there's a warning sign here when Laban says, I learned this from divination. You see, divination was something that was forbidden by God. The Israelites who would have first, first read this story in Genesis would have been all over this dangerous plot twist. You see, God had told them in Deuteronomy 18, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of these nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering anyone who practices divination, or tells fortunes, or interprets omens, or is a sorcerer, or a charmer, or a medium, or a necromancer, or one who inquires of the dead, whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You see, Laban is exhibiting behavior that that was common with the Canaanites. He's looking to some false form of worship to get his answers, somehow by the uh, common grace of God, he still finds out through this that God is the source of blessing for him through Jacob. Secondly, there's a hook not only of this divination thing that should have got Jacob's attention. Ooh, this isn't a good thing. There's also this word wages that Laban uses. He's hoping to hook Jacob into continued Service for him, you see he's completed one set of contract, so to speak, with his father in law now he 's trying to get him to sign on for another term. You see, Laban wants the second hand blessings to keep coming. he doesn't want to kill the goose that laid the golden egg, so to speak, so he slyly leans into jacob's deal making tendencies, and like Monty Hall of the old let 's make a deal show, Laban convinces Jacob to trade away. Uh, walking out with what he already has for what's behind curtain number two. So there's dangerous divination, but there's a third part to this negotiation, and that is that Jacob enters into it with dual deal-making. One deal-maker talking to another deal-maker starts to happen. Jacob takes the bait, but he tries to skew the deal in his direction. In verse 29, Jacob said to him, you yourself know how I've served you and how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly. And the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? He said, What shall I give you? Jacob said, You shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pass your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep, every black lamb, and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you, come into my, uh, when, when you look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, Good, let it be as you've said. So with this negotiation, Jacob thought, He's gonna be getting a really good deal. And by the way, this is completing the process. He's accepting the contract at this point, Laban is. And what Jacob was hoping for was he would get livestock with spots of color. Laban was gonna get solid coated livestock. He was going to get spotted livestock primarily. And Jacob already had a good idea of how he'd fare because he'd already been taking care of Laban's flocks. He knew all of the inventory. He knew what was going on. But we'll see soon that the deal is not going to go well for Jacob. Now, I want to pause and lean into the text here and think about our own lives. At this point in the story, I'm wondering, how does this relate to us? And I want to think about this. Who who was Jacob supposed to trust? Was he supposed to trust Laban? Was he supposed to put his trust in his own business ability? No. Laban had already been used by God in this conversation to prophetically remind Jacob of the source of his blessing, which was God's covenant promise. And notice Jacob doesn't dispute that. He knows his uncle has been blessed because of God's covenant promise to him. Basically, Laban said, dude, I want you around because God blesses me when you are here. But Jacob has blown right past that. He has let his close connection to the day-to-day inventory of the stocks blind him to the greater reality. He he knows what he's going to get. He can hardly wait. He's thinking how great he's going to make out with this deal he just struck now, before we shake our head at Jacob's dumb move, we might want to consider our own lives and ask ourselves this question Am I a deal maker or am I a promise believer? Am I a deal maker or am I a promise believer? You see, deal makers think that it is always their own hard work alone that gives them the life they have. Spiritually, deal makers may think their job is to impress God so God will bless them. And deal-making thinking is nearsighted. It usually only looks at today, at the stuff around me, at my skills, at my personal hustle, at my hard work, at my resources, and in the rush to gain an advantage can forget people around us aren't always at their best, and this world often has some very crooked twists in it. They may run ahead saying, fortune favors the bold as their motto, but that is not the way of faith. Listen to Hebrews 11:6. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You see, promised believers acknowledge that God is the source of all we are and all we have. They trust God's provision Not only in life, but provision in Christ for eternal life. They realize they cannot impress God, but must trust God. For salvation, they reject works-based ways to manipulate God's moral system and instead lean wholly into the work of Christ because only Jesus can save sinners. We can't save ourselves. Let's move to a second part of this story in verses 35 and 36 where we see Laban's double cross of Jacob. There are two ways in which Laban responds. First, he's just a dirty dealer. He's a deceiver and a dirty dealer. In verse 35, But that day, Laban removed the male goats that were spotted and striped, all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, everyone that had white on it, every lamb that was black, and he put them in charge of his sons. So what's going on here? Language is convoluted. Honestly, I'm not sure exactly what Laban did except for this. Laban took enough of what was supposed to be Jacob's portion of the flock to cheat his son-in-law. The verbiage, talking about female goats here and male animals here and lambs of this color, seemed to indicate that a few of what uh, Jacob was expecting was still left, but not the inventory he knew he was supposed to get. It seems he left a few, but he took way more. He's secretly betraying his own son-in-law, even hurting, get this, his own daughters and his own grandchildren in this deal. He deliberately is stacking the deck in his favor, knowing Jacob is not going to be able to just walk away with his choice of the flock now. This is a classic double cross. The deal went down and it went down dirty for Jacob. But look what else Laban does. He is such a stinker. He then creates distant division in verse 36. He set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob pastored the rest of Laban's flock. Laban is a real cheat. There's no way around it. Not only does he double-cross his own family, he makes it hard to get the problem fixed. Think about it. It's like you... You find this car, this used car, and you pay cash for it, and the dealer gives you the nice little 30-day warranty, and you drive home thinking everything's fine, and the next morning you start the car, and it sounds like a hundred dead animals. I mean, it's awful. And you think, hey, I got this 30-day warranty. I'm going to head back to the dealer. And so you bring it back to the dealer. And as you pull into the parking lot, there is a sign that says, closed for business. There was nothing Jacob could do. He couldn't call the Better Business Bureau. He was basically left twisting in the wind on this messed up deal. And he just had to accept it. So now we're in this setup with two characters who are going head-to-head like prize fighters. In one corner, we have Laban. He is a manipulator, having already tricked Jacob into marrying both his daughters, using him for cheap management of his flocks. And now he's cheating Jacob yet again. In the other corner, we have Jacob. He is also an equal master manipulator. You know, if you remember his story so far, he cheated his own brother out of his birthright literally with a crock of beans. He has deceived his own father. He's cheated his brother out of a second blessing by pretending to be him to gain all of the family inheritance when the time comes. And in this episode, he had hoped he would gain the advantage on Laban only to get outfoxed by his conniving uncle. Jacob and Laban remind me of two other famous fighters who went at each other for fame and fortune, Joe Frazier and Muhammad Ali. You see, a half century ago, the sports world was dominated by two heavyweight championship boxers. They first fought in 1971 in what was called the fight of the century. The hype around that event was everywhere. everywhere. I was a kid. I still remember it. They faced off in Madison Square Garden in New York City, and at the time, that was the big event. Joe Frazier won that match in a 15-round match decision and it was brutal but the two of them were not done that episode is sort of like Laban tricking Jacob into marrying his two daughters for Fraser and Ali super fight two came along in 1974 and that fight was just pure publicity hype and money making because the title was not put on the line for that fight The fight became very controversial because Ali was unanimously declared the 12-round winner by all the judges. Ali, of course, a man with a very small ego, said, I'm the greatest fighter of all time after that fight, even without the official title coming to him from the match. And this matchup is kind of like the way our story ends in today's text. Jacob's going to come out victorious despite a brutal fight. Well, Ali and Frazier met once more in a fight known as the Thrilla in Manila in 1975 where the, they legitimately faced once again uh, for the heavyweight world title. A record worldwide audience of one billion people watched the match. At the time, that was one-fourth, one-fourth of the world population. It was a brutal slugfest, two master boxers taking it to each other, with Ali gaining the upper hand in most of the rounds. Eventually, Ali took the world title from Fraser in a TKO, technical knockout, after Fraser's coach asked the judges to pull him from the fight in the 14th round. And as we'll see in a future sermon, Jacob is finally going to see success against all of Laban's manipulative efforts, but again, it is a brutal thing to watch. All three fights for Ollie and Frazier were rough. They were the two finest boxers hitting each other with everything they had. Most boxing experts think they were the two best the sport has ever produced. Videos of those three matches are still viewed millions of time times each year on the internet. That rivalry, rivalry is like what happens with Laban and Jacob, but instead of heavyweight boxers, they are heavyweight deal-makers and deceivers. But what was the cost of this episode for Jacob and Laban? Laban will let a deal and a win be more important than love for his own family. Ultimately, by hurting Jacob's income, he was making them all dependent upon him. His ill-treatment of his own kids and his grandkids was a means to control. It had to create a lot of unhappiness. It disappointed generations of his household. And Jacob had to live with this awful treatment. That leads us to another application question to lean into this morning. How should I respond to ill-treatment? How should I respond to ill-treatment? Be careful that conflicts do not define you. You see, Christians should be defined by the peace of God. But if we're not careful, we can let our conflicts not only disappoint us, but define us. This is one of the main lessons, by the way, from the life story of Jacob. God is trying to define Jacob's life and his family by covenant promises. But Jacob keeps deal-making in his relationships. The experience then is that Conflict, not covenant, defines him. And when it came to his relationship with Laban, Jacob had met an equally aggressive deal-maker, and those conflicts just kept getting worse and worse. See, if you let your conflicts define you, you will get trapped into deal-making, perhaps start living by manipulation and deception. You will try to control the person or the persons with whom you have the conflict and you will be disappointed time and time again. Could God have a purpose in ill-treatment and suffering, especially the suffering that may come from our own disastrous deal-making attempts, our attempts to maintain control? Well, the answer has to be yes, if God is truly God. Rather than disappointment and taking control when we were treated poorly, We should look to the example of Jesus in Hebrews 12, 2, where we're given this command. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Maybe you're here today, you're still struggling with either some bad deal-making or you're hurt from manipulation by people you thought should love you. I want to point you to look to Jesus. He endured the ultimate poor treatment to save you. Look to him for your strength and do not grow weary. Now at this point, we've seen this deal go bad and it's very disappointing for Jacob. What's left for Jacob to do? Let's look at our third point. It's part of the text we haven't read yet this morning, starting in verse 37, where we see Jacob's direction of Laban's flocks. And there are two ways in which Jacob responds to this problem, to this ill treatment. First, we see what looks like to us as a strange solution in 37 through 39. You see, Jacob has a kind of Weird mix of solutions as we look at it. He seems to lean into some common folk superstition. He leans into some skill in animal husbandry. And we'll find out also to a degree of trust in what God has revealed to him. But look what the text says in 37. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and he peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. And he set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is the watering places where the flocks come to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks. And so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. Now what is going on here? We're reading this. We've got to be scratching our heads. Because I guarantee that if you went to K-State with the intention of majoring in animal sciences, you would not be instructed in this livestock breeding technique. Some Bible scholars have tried to postulate that Jacob somehow knew about some sort of stamina-inducing substance that was unleashed when the branch bark was peeled and this practice was done. That is really speculation. I'd rather not add to the biblical information. I am just most comfortable accepting that the text says Jacob did these things. It does not imply that this uh, uh, why Jacob did these things, just that he did these things. In fact, we want to be careful there because there's further information that show us more of what Jacob was doing. But it seems that Jacob is leaning into some old shepherd's tale in the hopes of producing a better outcome for a larger herd. And before you fault, your, fault Jacob for that, remember, we do some weird things too. My dad used to love to have a garden every year. And for some reason totally unknown to me, his, his demand every year was the potatoes have to be planted before St. Patrick's Day. No scientific reason whatsoever other than that's the way it's got to be done. And I think a little of that thinking may be driving Jacob right now. Whatever he was doing, he believed it would help. If we go on to read further, we actually see that even though this weird stripped stick thing strikes us as very odd... There was also, in addition to it, just some livestock practice that worked to his benefit. Look at verse 40, where not only is there this strange solution, but there's a strong separation. Jacob separated the lambs, and he set the faces of the flocks toward the striped, and all the black in the flock of Laban, and he put his own droves apart, and did not put them with Laban's flock. And whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding... Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. So the separation of the flock sort of echoes Laban's physical separation that he put in distance between Jacob and the rest of his family. But what is really going on here? Simply put, Jacob is doing a kind of selective breeding, which any livestock owner would strive to do. He's trying to get the desired outcome of spotted and dark sheep and goats. He's selectively breeding those stronger spotted individuals for his own flock. He's separating out the weaker ones for Laban's herd. And in that way, in just a few seasons time, he is able to re what Laban had stolen in the double cross. And he probably got a healthier flock. It's also very helpful to look ahead in the text to get us some insight as to why Jacob was motivated to do all of this stuff. In fact, if you turn just one page over to Genesis 31, Jacob retells this story starting in verse 10. He says this, In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes, and I saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see. All the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. You see, with that information, we realize God was superintending all of this situation. And Jacob, in one sense, was just obeying what God revealed to him. I've seen what your uncle has done to you. And I will make sure you get the flock you struck in the deal. By taking the time to separate the herds, Jacob was actually acting by faith on what God had already revealed he was going to do to make sure those flocks turned out to his favor. This shows us that although Jacob was disappointed by Laban's manipulation, he stayed dedicated to trusting God. So we see that Jacob's not just exclusively trying to take control, but is trusting God. His original deal was his way to take control. Quickly, it was shut down by Laban's dirty dealing. God through time and through the process of trial brought Jacob to trust his provision and God's blessing was greater than Jacob's disappointment by Laban. That leads us to another application question to lean into and that's this. Do I wanna take control when instead I should trust God? Do I want to take control when instead I, I should trust God? I want to be somewhat transparent here and, and share with you when, when control issues weave their way into my heart, where does my thinking go? And, and for me personally, I, th- I think three areas where control uh, becomes an issue for me. First is when I start thinking I will control my life. I will control my life. God God helps those who help themselves, even though that's not in the Bible anywhere, right? I will work hard. I will make it happen. But here's a little secret. I don't run the universe. God does. I can't make those things happen, even though I think I will. So I will control my life tends to be a way that doesn't work when I want to take control. But how about this? I will control my relationships. And there can be various strategies from manipulation to just shutting things down. To But all of them ultimately bring failure. And here's why I can't make others be what I want. I can't make others be what I want. And then a third area where control may be an issue for me is I think I will control my future. Whether it's filling those money buckets or planning every detail of a circumstance one minute can carefully or can knock down all my carefully stacked dominoes in just one minute. One hardship wipes out a fortune. One economic downturn will empty your buckets. Why? Because I do not know what God knows, but God knows. There's one last verse that I want to look at in our text that gives us some perspective in verse 43. And it's our fourth point. And it's this. God prospers Jacob according to his promise and not human scheming. You see, if we read verse 43, we're going to see that the prosperity, the blessing that Jacob experiences is not just in sheep and goats. All of our texts have been all about weird things with sheep and goats. But now the text says... Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks. We expect that, but look what else. Female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. All of that other stuff is God adding to Jacob. It is not Jacob's skill at striking a deal. You see, there are two very important bookends to our story that clearly show us that the growing wealth of Jacob was God's blessing not just the outcome of Jacob's deal-making. We pointed out in chapter 31 how God told Jacob that the striped and spotted goats would breed and increase and that it was his doing. That's the bookend at the end of the episode. But there's also a bookend at the beginning of this episode. Remember back in Genesis 28, the dream that Jacob has of the ladder that goes to heaven at Bethel. As he's running from Esau and he's headed eventually to Uncle Laban. You see, there God promised to take good care of Jacob. He said this, "...your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed." Behold, I'm with you, and I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. All of that is being fulfilled even in this story. Jacob prospered because God was in covenant with him. Yes, he worked very, he worked hard, and he, and he worked well. But ultimately, it's these bookends of God's promise that show us that God was truly taking care of Jacob despite his tendency to manipulate and despite his own hurt at being manipulated by Laban. So what do we learn about God's blessing from this? First, I think it's this, that God's blessing defies some things. God's blessing defies human logic. Jacob had struck his deal thinking he knew how it was going to go down, He didn't count on it changing. Laban changed it. Human logic falls short. God's blessing defied deception and broken relationships. After Laban changed it, it all was different. Well, we believe that God can work out for his glory to honor his promise, even in the brokenness of our relationships. I know this. Every family has some place where it's broken. Every story has some sad twist every relationship hits some lows and half that have to be understood and endured even jesus who lived a perfect life was opposed and misunderstood by his own family god's blessing is bigger than these close relationships that can sometimes create unintended and spiteful wounds but God's blessing defies not only human logic and broken relationships, but our skills and our abilities. You see, ultimately, it wasn't about smart, stock-keeping practices. God was keeping his promise to Jacob. The same is true for us as believers. We, he will take care of us. He will provide. We must obey what God reveals by his word and trust him. God's blessing defies some things and God's blessing cannot be manipulated. Both by Jacob and by Laban, manipulation was taking place. They were all hoping for the best deal. Laban thought by manipulating the terms of a deal and double-crossing, he would keep his golden goose. This created more hardship. It really set Jacob up for even bigger blessing in the long term. Jacob thought that by signing on one more time to Laban's terms, He would get even wealthier, but initially he got played instead. He had to learn to trust God to get him out of the mess Laban was making of his life. Jacob was right where God wanted him and where he needed to be, dependent on God to keep promises because his deal-making was a source of misery. Maybe you feel like you are in a mess of relationships or your life circumstances right now are a big problem. Honestly, as you look at Laban and Jacob, you might feel that You've helped to make your own mess. Well, I want you to know, none of that is too big for the gospel. You are right where God needs you to be. Which leads us to our sermon in a sentence. We will never be disappointed in the promises of God. We'll never be disappointed in the promises of God. Why? We're not disappointed in the promises of God because Romans 5, 3-5, hope does not disappoint. We exult in our tribulations knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Perseverance, proven character, proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. What starts in tribulation and difficulty, God has promised, will end in hope. In Jesus so hope does not disappoint we're not disappointed in the promises of God because God is faithful Philippians 1 6 I'm sure of this and he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ God is not giving up his work on us is always ongoing amen there's never a circumstance that changes this ever We may take our eyes off God. He never takes his eyes off us. God is faithful. And then we'll never be disappointed in the promises of God because God saves sinners. He saves sinners. Romans 5 again, verses 6 through 8, tell us while we were weak at the right time. That's right where we needed to be. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were weak, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us while we're still sinners. Christ died for us. You see, you may be struggling because you've never really admitted that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. That God has shown his love now to you in Jesus. He isn't waiting for you to change because you can't do it on your own. He wants to change you by the saving work of Jesus. Stop trying to strike your deal with God because you can't. Accept that Jesus loves you and wants to be your savior now. God has struck all the terms of the deal for us in his son. You believe that he sent his son to die for you and give you new life. And that is, my friends, the best deal of all. Why? because it rests solely on the promises of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we are never disappointed in the work of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that as we go through our circumstances, whatever we may face, whatever we do face now, whatever we will face That we will be a people committed to believing and trusting you and if there's someone here right now who doesn't know you jesus i would pray that now would be the time that they would trust you find life in you and find new hope through what you give in your name we ask it jesus
0: amen if you like what you've heard or want to find out more information please visit our website at MyMillCreek.com.